Well, this morning we're back in our series called Home Life, where we're doing some practical theology as a church. Uh, What I mean is we're learning what the Bible says about many practical and important matters that we face at home every day. We've spent some weeks learning about marriage from the Bible's perspective, and now we're doing the same on singleness. Today we're going to look at a passage that deals with singleness head on. We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, please open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 on pages 155 and 56 of the Bibles there. Sorry, 955 and 56. (laughs) The living God of the Bible cares for single people of all kinds. He cares for widows widowers, divorcees, old and young single people everywhere. He sees and speaks to the singles in this church who feel that nobody sees them. There are a lot of ways the world tells us to think about singleness, but what does God's word say? That's what we want to do today. We want to find out what does God have to say about singleness. God's word that came to the Corinthian church in the first century in Greece is still God's word for us today at Calvary Baptist Church. And all through this letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul shows this church how the gospel is meant to be integrated, to be mixed in to their life and the things that matter to them in real life. And he does this because he wants to promote integrity and love in the church. The very last chapter of this uh, book, he says that he wants, uh, he says, let all that you do be done in love in uh, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 14. What a command. Let all that you do be done in love. Apparently, Corinth was filled with believers who lived in ways that were unbelievably inconsistent with the Jesus whom they claimed to believe in. And Paul highlights the ways the church is to hold on to the gospel in one hand while navigating the matters of real life like divisions or cliques in the church, like sexuality and sexual immorality in the church, like food and popular cultural practices, like the order of service and communion when the church gathers to worship on Sunday and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul's letter is at times painful to read because he's putting his finger on the disconnects that this church community had between their so-called relationship with Jesus and their real life. It's also painful to read because if we're honest, we know that our experience is all too similar. Uh, We fail just as often and just like this church not to submit our life and desires under the lordship of Christ. We're quick to slip into thinking about our life and the world around us without any reference whatsoever to what Jesus and his word says to us and for us. So today we need the risen Christ to renew our minds again. And we need this all the time in every area of our life. And today I hope to show you how Christ and his word speak to all of us as his church, especially when we're thinking about singleness. My aim is to... Uh, uh, my aim is for you and for me to grow in appreciating the people of this church 
who may be in a different age, stage, and status of life, but who are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And for you, not to look down your nose at them because they're different or in a different stage of life, but to appreciate your differences in love so that all we do as a church may be done in love. So let's start by looking at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, the start of the chapter. Paul says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, Paul had been corresponding uh, with the church in Corinth. Uh, but unfortunately for us, we don't have all the letters that they wrote to each other. Uh, we don't have the letter he's referring to here. So we're only hearing one side of the conversation. But what's clear in this section is that Paul's discussing questions about marriage, divorce, singleness, and those who are betrothed, because that's what the whole chapter deals with. Uh, or we may say, uh, speaking of betrothed, uh, the uh, maybe something similar to what we would call engaged to be married. Um, it's possible in this situation at that time in uh, the church of Corinth that uh, maybe they had written Paul asking about the uh, women in the church who were engaged to be married. Uh, and it's possible that there were fathers in the Corinthian church who were asking Paul about their yet-to-be-married daughters whom they would be arranging weddings for. Uh, which was a common practice in that day. Uh, they may have asked Paul something like, so Paul, should my, daughter be uh, should my daughter be getting married now? Now, why would this be such an urgent question on people's minds? Uh, well, that's because as you look at verse 26, it says that there was a present distress in Corinth. We can't be certain about what he's referring to here, because again, we don't have the other side of the conversation. But it's very possible he's referring to a famine that resulted in food shortages in first century Greece. This present distress is important to keep in mind, especially as we work through this passage today and see what Paul says. So why would questions about engagement matter so much? Well, put yourself in their shoes for a second. If there's a massive crisis, even a food shortage in your country or region of the world, you may need to rethink your wedding plans, right? The text might be getting some traction with us now, right? Especially for those of you who have been married in the last two years. Uh, you know that during COVID, you had to think carefully through your wedding plans, and you may have had to rethink your wedding plans because of what was going on in the world. And you had to ask a lot of questions and make a lot of adjustments and decisions because we were going through a crisis of sorts. Not exactly like the one in Corinth, but close enough, I think, to catch the significance of what's going on. Now, look at verse 6 to 9 of this chapter. Paul elaborates on the benefits of remaining single in such a situation. He says, Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each one, sorry, each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul's seeking to promote a contentment within the church that's not based on their relationship status. He's seeking to remind the believers of that church of what matters most. As a single man, he wishes they'd remain single as he is. 
but that's not a command from the Lord. He recognizes that both marriage and singleness are gifts from God, just for a season of life. They are gifts from God, and they are not ultimate. But he says it's better to marry than to burn with passion, meaning to commit sexual sin. Not because God gives a pass for sexual sin here until people finally get married. Not at all. But because it's better to marry and have sex within marriage than it is to burn with passion and have sex outside of marriage, which is sin. So if you're a Christian and you're single right now, let me be clear. You are called to live with self-control, meaning you will remain sexually inactive, pure, and celibate. Because Jesus has called us to live sexually pure. I love what Sam Albury says of this verse. He says, Paul's point is that you should turn to marriage to fulfill your passions, not because he thinks that's, not because he thinks that's all marriage is good for, but because marriage is the only godly place for such passions to be fulfilled. That's a good, that's a good quote, Sam. Thanks. You're awake. All right, now with all this in mind as our context, okay, that's the introduction. I think we're prepared now to dig into this text, but first we're going to pray to the Lord together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the wonderful words that you've spoken to us, and we ask that you'd give us clarity, that you would speak carefully and tenderly through your words through me to this people in this context today, and that you, Lord, uh, would be giving us insight to the wonders of your love. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're going to see how God's word gives us hopeful and healthy ways to think about singleness. God's word gives us hopeful and healthy ways to think about singleness. And the first thing we're going to see in this text is that God's word gives us hopeful and healthy ways to think about our current situation. Look at verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Now of this verse, Richard Pratt uh, says, apparently there was a controversy in the Corinthian church over whether engaged couples should go ahead and marry. Paul admitted that Jesus had not taught on the matter, no command from the Lord. Quite possibly, Paul meant that the Corinthians' present crisis presented a unique problem which neither Jesus nor the Old Testament had addressed. Even so, Paul's view as an apostle was authoritative. By the Lord's mercy, he was trustworthy to speak sound advice. All right, this is a peculiar passage. This passage starts with Paul's trustworthy advice or counsel. This is a beautiful example of biblical counseling or practical um, uh, theology or pastoral wisdom. And the Corinthian church was going through a time that required wisdom because Wisdom is not only concerned about what is right and wrong in a situation. It's also concerned about what is best in our specific situation. As one Bible teacher says, the goal of wisdom is the formation of character and to make sense of life's anomalies. And as we've seen, Corinth had a present distress that was an anomaly. 
in such cases where we face such anomalies and must make plans, we must pursue wisdom and listen to counsel from those trustworthy, godly people around us. And this is what the church in Corinth was doing. As Proverbs 20, 18 says, plans are established by counsel. And counsel that leads to wisdom in such situations will bring us pleasure, not pain. Proverbs 10, 29 says, wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. Tramper Longman, who has written a really wonderful uh, commentary on Proverbs, says, the wisdom formula is to speak the right word to the right person at the right time. And Paul does just that. He gives his advice, his counsel, wisdom. Uh, But he's not making his advice binding on them in the same way that a clear command from Scripture would be binding on their consciences. Notice what he says in verse 25. I have no command from the Lord. But he's making a judgment call here, okay? He's going to answer their question, but he says, I have no command from the Lord. They inquired wisdom about their specific situation from Paul, and here he's giving them his advice. Now, think about it. You may do the same when you're facing a pressing decision in your life, right? Uh, Maybe it's marriage. Maybe it's your career. Big decisions like buying a house, becoming a missionary, or even dating. There's many more, right? But in those times, we seek out wisdom. You look for wise people who can accurately assess your life situation in light of God's word. And once all the facts are on the table, you may ask them, do you have any advice for me? And you wait and you listen in closely for what Proverbs calls an apt answer or a word in season, a word that fits just right for you and your situation in light of God's word. That's what the Corinthians were doing here with Paul. And church, if you have the privilege as a friend of others in this church to be asked for your advice, um, recognize that this is a privilege. Um, And you've been given an opportunity to share uh, wisdom. But I have some advice for you if you have the privilege of being the one who's been asked such questions, listen carefully before you, you speak. Probe gently and slowly. Speak carefully and pastorally to the dear people of this church who are inquiring, or inquiring wisdom from you because you've been entrusted with the fine china of their life. Now, listen to how Paul offers his wisdom, his advice in verses 26 to 28. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, they have not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Okay, so as we saw, marrying wasn't wrong. But there was more to consider in their situation, right? Wisdom looks for more. Was the timing the best, the right and wise timing? There are some things that are worth considering if you're going to marry in a time where there are food shortages and a famine in your country. 
Think of it. You're, you're going to need to think about feeding your spouse, not just yourself anymore. And if the famine continues and you end up having children together, you'll have to think about feeding your kids too in the middle of a food shortage. That's stressful. And here's a snapshot of the anxieties of married life, right? But don't miss this. This is important when you're doing practical theology. Not all our situations and problems in life as Christians are addressed by direct commands from the Lord in Scripture. So what do we do when we don't have direct commands from, Lord, when, when the, from the Lord and our situation isn't directly addressed by the Bible? When we don't have a thus says the Lord, but we're in situations that require God's help and blessing, in such situations, we seek out wisdom, don't we? But we must bring all the facts to the Lord and to trustworthy people who live with a posture of wise, loving humility in the presence of the Lord. And as we bring our situations to them, we seek their advice. We get counsel from them. We learn from their wisdom. We go to Scripture and the Gospel again, which sheds light on all of our life. Paul says, considering the present distress, you may be better off staying just as you are. If you're married, remain married. If you're not married, don't seek to be married. But he's quick to say, but if you do marry, it's not sin. Now, this passage is specific counsel to them and their specifics, right? And this is important because Paul's counsel here isn't a command, but a judgment call, meaning this doesn't apply to all single people in all situations, right? This is obvious. In other words, Paul isn't saying that all single people should stay single continually and never get married. Of course not, because no one would get married then, right? The occasion in Corinth was unique, and he's speaking directly to their situation with words of wisdom to spare them from having more trouble and troubles to compound their present distress. Now, are there any takeaways here for us? Maybe. Let's think. Are there some things that we experience today which God's word doesn't give specific commands about? Class? Anybody? <laughs> yes. Uh, sure. Let's take, for example, dating, right? Does your Bible say anything at all about dating? How would you answer that question? Probably the best way to answer that question would be to say yes and no, right? It depends on what you mean by dating. Does the Bible specifically say the word dating, referring to the social construct we mean when we're talking about two people dating today? The answer is no. Because dating, the dating that we do in 2022 wasn't practiced in Bible times, right? But does God's word give any wisdom and shed any light for us as we consider who, why, where, when, and how to date? I think so. We have a plethora of wisdom in Scripture for such situations. For example, Proverbs would caution anyone from dating angry, foolish, stubborn, and lazy people. Right? 2 Corinthians, and this passage, as we'll see later on, sheds light on the necessity for Christians to marry people in the Lord. That is to say, Christians are not to be missionary dating. They are to be marrying in the Lord. They are to be marrying other Christians. God's Word gives us hopeful and helpful, healthy ways to think about our current situation, doesn't it? So think about yours and seek wisdom. All right. Now, as we proceed, Paul zooms in on our hearts. 
Next, we see that God's word gives us hopeful and healthy ways to think about our devotion to the Lord. Look at verse 29 to 31. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Okay, so Paul now gives the church an eternal perspective. I think what he's getting at in verse 29 when he says that those who are married should, uh, uh, those who have wives live as though they had none. I think what he's getting at here is that even those of us who are married need to keep our eyes set on the things above. Not, of course, neglecting our spouse who we're in covenant with. That would be irresponsible. But remembering that our primary affections are to be set on Christ. Then in verses 30 to 31, he gives us some contrasting situations between this age and the one to come. Uh, He's shedding light on the present distress with a reminder that life here and now is but a vapor, as James says. Our situations may be stressful here and now, or even troubling here and now, but they're not permanent. They won't last forever. In fact, our appointed time here on earth is very short, as he says. His point is not that we shouldn't experience any mourning, any happiness, have any possessions, get involved in the world in any way, we, in, in the ways uh, that we do. But the point is to say, these legitimate aspects of life are not everything there is to life. In other words, if you're married, hold this relationship in its proper place. With the gospel in hand, remember that your spouse is not your savior. With the gospel in hand, remember that Jesus, not your job, nor your happiness, nor your wealth, deserves your first and foremost loyalty. Our hearts, devotion, and worship belong to Christ our Lord. And Jesus is the one that we need to set our affections on primarily. The world we live in won't last forever. Its present form is passing away. And Jesus is coming soon. And now he's going to contrast the situations of single people with married people. He reminds them of the eternal perspective because losing this may bring with it many anxieties. Look at what he says in verses 32 to 35. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So here's one of the happiest descriptions of single living in Scripture. If you're single right now, you have an opportunity to be undivided in your devotion to Christ. You have an ability, uh, an agility, and a flexibility to your life that us married people don't have. You have uh, the flexibility that us married people don't have. You have the opportunity to set your minds completely on pleasing the Lord. It's not that you have more time than married people. 
It's just that your time is less divided than ours, right? It's not that married people should expect you to pull all their weight for them. It's that you have less things pulling you in different directions. We married folks are divided, dare I say, distracted most times. Verses 33 to 34 says that married people have their interests divided. And this is the way it should be, of course. Spiritually speaking, married people shouldn't be single-minded because they aren't single anymore. They ought to think of the interests of others. They ought to think of the well-being of their spouse. And uh, we've talked a lot about that in this service. But their hearts are to be aimed on pleasing the Lord. But to do that, they also think of loving those around them and their family. Married people are divided between the domestic demands of their home life and discipleship. And we're growing by faith to keep the gospel in hand as we work to please our Lord and our spouses. And that's a difficult balance. But this means that at times we're unavailable to serve others when single Christians are available. We're preoccupied with family a lot of the time. It's not that we're not called to live as disciples since we're married. Of course not. Whatever God commands to his followers is to be obeyed by his followers, whether we're single or married. However, our availability, our freedom to love, to freedom to serve others, has changed since we got married, right? So single Christian, you have a freedom to love and serve others in your singleness. You have the ability and opportunity to be single-minded in your devotion to Christ, to spend your energy on the things of the Lord and being concerned about pleasing Him. This is a precious gift from God. Don't waste it. Look at what verse, verses, uh, sorry, verse 34 says. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. For Christians to please the Lord in their singleness, we must abstain from sexual immorality. This means we're seeking to be set apart in body and spirit, fixing our affections on Christ, seeking to be uh, pleasing to him in all of our life. All right, let's think for a minute about uh, something practical. The different experiences you had this morning if you're single or if you're married. Okay, if you're married with children, for the most part, this is what you were up to this morning. Okay, you, you got up. Maybe to your alarm, or if you have children, to a screaming child. Maybe you read your Bible. Maybe you showered. Maybe you got, well, sorry. Maybe you read your Bible. Maybe you you didn't. You showered. You got dressed. You ate. Then you got your children up, showered, dressed, fed, cleaned up after them, drove them to church, checked them into Sunday school or nursery. Then you came and sat down for service, right? And you probably sat down and exhaled, already exhausted. Wow. That was an intense morning, and it's only 9 o'clock, all right? Now, if you're single, for the most part, this is what you were up to this morning. You got up to an alarm. Maybe you slept in. Maybe you checked the weather. Maybe you read your Bible, showered, got dressed, grabbed a bite, and came to church, right? You took care of yourself to get here. The married people had to take care of themselves and others to get here. Is that wrong? No. Are single people and married people having a very different morning right now? Yes. Are the married people with children here divided when they're listening to a sermon and while their children are screaming in the nursery? Yes. 
If you're single, when you hear a child screaming in service, do you automatically think, is that mine? Should I go help? Or <laughs> do you think, can someone go take care of that child? <laughs> can we appreciate, as a church, the differences? I hope so. Whether you're single or married, widowed with children or not, each of us have been called by Jesus to take up our cross and follow him. Single people, you're walking with a cross. You walk with crosses. And married people, you walk with a cross. You walk with crosses too. Both of us are seeking to follow Jesus in our current situations. Both of us have a gentle Savior who knows us and calls us to come. And both of us come bearing a cross. Yours is different than your brother's and your sister's. But don't minimize it because it's different and it's not yours. Let's love one another in our differences and in the differences of our experiences as a church. Jesus is teaching us all the secret of contentment, isn't he? Married people, there are probably times that you wish that you were single. Single people, there are probably times that you wish you were married. It's been told to me it's like the fly. The fly tries to get into the screen, you know, it gets in in the summer, and then it goes back on the screen trying to get out uh, later on. But we're learning to be content with where we're at. And Jesus is trying to teach us contentment, isn't he? What does Paul say in Philippians 4, 11 to 13? I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Can we apply this to our current situations? Absolutely. Let us grow in learning contentment from the Lord. Many of you who are single here aren't wasting your singleness. Uh, you're plugged into a small group. You're serving in the church with your time and energy. You come to worship faithfully. You spend time together with your friends uh, for hours talking on end about the things of the Lord. And you are such a blessing to us as a church. You may teach in Sunday school or you may do another service to the church and a different team. Um, but you're undivided in your devotion to Christ and you're set on pleasing him in body and spirit. I'm humbled by your love and service to Christ and his church. If you're single for this season of your life, you've been given a gift. Enjoy this time where you can be undivided in your devotion to the Lord. Married life, as Paul says, brings with it many anxieties. The interests of the married man and the married woman are divided. While the single Christian has the freedom to dedicate themselves to Christ and his church, but whatever our status is right now, God our Father has given it to us as a gift. We must learn to be content in whatever situation we find ourselves in today. Now this leads us to the final part of our text, where we see that God's word gives us hopeful and healthy ways to think about our decisions. God's word gives us hopeful and healthy ways to think about our decisions. Look at verse 36. 
If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Oh, this is picking up what we saw earlier. The point is, it's not that it, uh, it's it's uh, the point is not is it right or wrong to marry, but is it best to marry now? And a question like that, um, uh, we may be asking ourselves something like that today. Maybe you're dating right now, and you're wondering if right now is the best time. And the next two verses are a very wise guide for you, and for all of us as a church. Here's a clear word from God that we need to hear. Look at what he says in 39 to 40. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whomever she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. So given their situation, as we've already seen, it's probably best to remain as they are, right? There's a current, a present distress But if they want to get married, they are free to do so. But there are a couple conditions here. It's for life. Recognize that. It's for life, and it's in the Lord. Look at verse 39. He says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whomever she wishes, only in the Lord. Here's the nature of Christian marriage. When the two become one flesh, they are bound together for life. Now, Scripture will speak elsewhere of the exceptions to this rule when it comes to separation and divorce. In fact, in verses 10 to 16 of this very chapter, Paul gives an important word for those considering separation and divorce. And as Pastor Matt mentioned in his sermon called Marriage, the Covenant of Love, Scripture gives two exceptions for divorcing your spouse, adultery and abandonment. And we would say that if your spouse is abusing you, that connects with those two categories as well. But as this verse emphasizes, God designed marriage to be a lifelong covenant. We're all, we've already seen that in this series so far on marriage. But when people get married, a husband and a wife come together. They are a walking, talking demonstration to the world of the gospel. Right? It's about Christ and his love for his bride, the church. That's what marriage is about. And this love bond is for life. However, if the husband or wife dies, as this text shows, the spouse that remains alive is free to be married to whomever he or she wishes. Look at verse, uh, sorry, do you remember uh, Romans 7, 1 to 3? Or do you not know, brothers... For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So again, we come to see that marriage is meant to be for life. But we should also consider the common question. Okay, should, mar- should Christians marry non-Christians? 
What do you think? What does the Bible say? In verse 39, oh yeah, back and forth, good. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> in verse 39, it says, you are free to marry whoever you want, only in the Lord, right? To be in the Lord means to be a Christian, a person who has been united to him by trusting in him to save their life. His life, his death, his resurrection is the only sacrifice that will deliver us from the evil in our hearts. So a question for you, friend. Have you trusted in the Lord to save you, the Lord Jesus? If you have, then you're a new creation now. You are in the Lord, as Scripture would say. And if you're in the Lord, your whole life is to be centered on him, which would certainly include your marriage or your singleness, whatever your status is right now. You're to center your life on Christ, who is the Lord. But what's clear from God's word is that if you are a Christian, young man, young woman, old man, old woman, however you are placed in this life, if you want to marry someone, you must marry in the Lord. That's what the scripture says. Now, I hope today you've come to see how rich, how wise and hopeful and healthy God's word is for us as we think through singleness as Christians. I also hope it's given you an appreciation for your age, stage, and status in life and the age, stage, and status of everyone else in here. I hope it's helping you as it's helping me to let all that we do be done in love. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we uh, do recognize, Lord, that there are so many people around us who need to be strengthened in their contentment, whether it is in marriage or singleness. We at times blame shift. We at times uh, complain and get angry at our situation in life. But we do ask now, Lord, that you would hear our prayer, that you would hear our heart and see what's going on in our life, and that we would cry out to you for wisdom, for strength, to be content. Because Christ gives us the strength to be content in whatever our situation is. And so, Lord, please help us to be content with the strength of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray in his name.